Welcome to Emmanuel Anglican Church. My name is Father Aaron Damiani, and we're beginning, uh, we're in our second week of a new sermon series called More Than Sex, Becoming Spiritual Mothers and Fathers. This series is really, it's an invitation to maturity as men and women, uh, and it provides a roadmap for discipleship in our genders wisdom in our sexuality, and a gospel vision for single, singleness, marriage, and the family of God. And as I say every week, everyone is welcome here, and everyone's welcome for this series. You're loved, and I appreciate your being here. In his novel, uh, Remembering, Wendell Berry tells the story of a Kentucky farmer named Andy Catlett. Uh, one warm summer evening, Andy Catlett is assisting one of his uh, younger neighbor farmers who needs help with the corn harvest. And so Andy Catlett, an experienced experienced farmer, goes out and he's manning the corn picker, which helps separate the stalks from uh, from the the husks. And uh, the picker becomes jammed at one point as he's putting these stalks through to harvest the corn. And so he begins reaching out and begins pulling out the stalks. And at one point, uh, the machine, uh, as, as he's pulling out the stalk, takes his right hand. But in the moment, in the confusion of the moment, it felt like he was sort of giving his right hand. And he found himself, uh, hours later, lying on a hospital bed, about to be uh, rushed into surgery. And that's when his wife, Flora, found him. And I'm quoting from the book. She smiled and picked up his left hand, the one that he still had. She picked up his left hand into hers and patted it and asked, what have you done to yourself? Bitterness and fear and shame rushed upon him. Then he said, I've ruined my hand. I've ruined my hand. Long after the accident, the shame of I've ruined my hand, sort of hangs over him like a black cloud. And he finds himself, you know, like looking in the mirror and grimacing because all he can see here is a stump and he hates it. He feels defective. Feels like a defective farmer. Imagine being a farmer without your right hand. He feels like a defective dad. He feels like a defective husband. Really a defective human being. He feels shame about it. Perhaps saddest of all, he pushes people away. When people draw near to him, he, he like pushes them away. Now, I think in one way or another, many of us can relate with Andy's battle with shame. Some of us look in the mirror and we grimace because we don't like what we see. All we see is something defective. Or maybe we have our own version of the phrase, I've ruined my hand. We, we feel like we've been sort of like damaged beyond repair. And maybe like Andy, we're, we're angry at ourselves because we feel like maybe it's our own fault. And this is really common among survivors of rape and abuse. They feel like it was their fault somehow that they were abused and taken advantage of. It's like, did the machine take my hand or, or did I like give my hand? It feels like maybe, maybe they kind of gave their hand. Many of us experience shame around our genders. When Andy lost his good right hand, 
he lost the sense of like power and masculinity because this is the way he provided for his family, having this hand and using it skillfully. Then he lost it. And so he didn't, so his masculinity and his power was kind of diminished and he felt shame around that. And so many of us feel some kind of shame around our masculinity. We don't feel masculine enough or our femininity. We don't feel feminine enough, woman enough. The thing about shame is it pushes us into hiding. Um, author and psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson notes this in his book, The Soul of Shame. When we experience shame, we, turn to, we tend to turn away from others because of the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified. So shame gets us into this ever-tightening noose where we feel shame, so we hide from people, so we don't feel any more shame. But then the more we hide from people, the more shame we feel. Now, this involves, of course, hiding the parts of ourselves that we don't like. But then, you know what else we hide? We hide our love and we hide our power when we feel ashamed. Again, Kurt Thompson says, shame is a primary means to prevent us from using the gifts we have been given. It is a result of evil's active assault on God's creation. So the call of this series is to become spiritual mothers and fathers, which is a a wonderful and dignifying call. Now, shame is going to sabotage that journey unless God heals it, unless God helps us through it. People stuck in shame are self-obsessed and self-protective. Spiritual parents, on the other hand, utterly give themselves in joy and love in a way that is not self-protective. So how do we overcome shame as God's sons and daughters? Um, We're going to enter the story. We're going to really put ourselves into the story of Genesis 3 to find out. And along the way, we're going to unpack the first appearance of shame among our parents, our first parents, and gain a better understanding of how shame seduces us and holds us back from love. So this is really a vision for what God can do with our shame and how he can renew us and restore us again as his sons and daughters. So to that end, let's turn to Genesis 3 together. Where does shame begin? You know, shame begins with the accuser. It doesn't begin with us not being good enough. Shame actually begins with the capital A accuser. The accuser is is none other than Satan, uh, the enemy of God and all human beings. The accuser hates God. He hates God's people. He hates the image of God. He hates you. He hates me. And he doesn't want any one of us receiving our birthright as God's sons and daughters. The accuser is terrified, in fact, of the 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 reality that we might mature into spiritual fathers and mothers who bring life to the world. And so he's going to use shame and accusation in any way he can to keep us in hiding. He wants to form a wedge between us and God. He wants to sabotage the living communion that we have with the Father by any means possible. So the first tool that the enemy is going to use, the accuser is going to use, is confusion. He's going to use confusion. Look with me at verse 1. Um, of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Let's just stop there. In the ancient Near East, serpents were, they were seen as kind of 
uh, wise and fearsome and mysterious and powerful creatures. So this particular serpent, it, maybe it's Satan himself, uh, or maybe it is like an ambassador, like a willing vessel carrying Satan's message and doing his bidding. Um, in either case, the serpent finds a receptive audience with Eve. And uh, the serpent says to the woman, um, now consider the ridiculousness of this question, all right? Think about how stupid this question is. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What kind of a God would, would create people with stomachs and appetites and put them, in a, put them in a garden with all kinds of delicious fruit and then just say, you can't eat anything? Do you see how, how, how tricky he's being? Is that This is a stupid question, and really what he's doing is confusing their view of God. Like, let me get this straight. You have a God that says, you, you, you're hungry, but you're not allowed to eat anything. Is that the God that you serve? This would be a very cruel and petulant God withholding all good things from his kids. Um, we might picture the accuser taking Eve aside with a concerned look on his face and then kind of lowering his voice like, hey, I heard God told you not to eat anything in this beautiful garden. Is that really true? Did he really say that? Now, if Eve had internalized God's word, if she had memorized it, if she had meditated on it, if she had gone back to reference it, um, then she would be able to quote from Genesis 2, 16 and 17 to correct the serpent, um, where her father said, you may surely eat from every tree of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that you may not eat. So get out of here. Like, get behind me, Satan. That's a ridiculous question. Or better yet, Adam, who verse 6 tells us is with Eve, could have stepped in between his wife and the serpent and said, get out of here. This is my house. I'm the Lord and master of this part of creation, and you are not welcome here. So get out of here with your lies and get out of here with your confusion uh, because we have a good God and we have plenty of food to eat, but he didn't do that. So verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of any fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, did God say, don't touch the tree? You go back and you look in Genesis 2, he doesn't say, go touch the tree. This is Eve's kind of like confused and muddled thinking. Maybe for her, it was like a boundary that she set up. Or maybe she's being legalistic and fundamentalist, and she's projecting that on God. But in either case, she's confused too. And this is what Satan wants. Now, Satan can totally swing at her fundamentalist pinata and be like, oh, really, you want to serve that God? She's given him something to deconstruct. And so he just continues. Now, this is what the accuser is always going to do. He's going to come in with half-truths and confusion about the character of God. And we're going to start imagining God condemning us when he's actually calling us or accusing us when he's actually embracing us, or prohibiting us when he's actually providing for us. So confusion sets up Eve for the knockout punch of comparison. This is the second thing that the accuser brings. Verse four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here the accuser compares Eve to God in a negative way. Hey, you know what? God knows good and evil. Apparently, you don't know, really, the difference between good and evil. For crying out loud, Eve, look at yourself. Look at yourself in comparison to other, you know, to God. I mean, you're a baby. You can't eat from the tree. Oh, you can't even touch the tree. God's going to kill me. He's not going to do that. You're so naive. You can't even look into the mysteries, Eve, of good and evil. What kind of a lowly creature, what kind of a naive creature wouldn't even be able to do that? You'll be vulnerable to God's tricks. You'll never be wise, Eve. You'll never be mature. You'll never make history. But imagine it, Eve. Imagine being like God. Imagine showing him. Imagine showing them. So the accuser loves to compare us. The accuser loves it when we take up the mantle of comparison, start comparing ourselves and coming up short. Comparison's secret message is always, you're not enough. You'll never be enough. Or maybe if you try hard to be perfect, maybe then you'll be enough. But it's a lie. The accuser is still doing this. Um, maybe you've been tempted by the accuser to compare yourself, to compare your, your body with other bodies, to compare your relationships, your romance or friendships or networks compared with other people who are at your same stage of life and to see are they further along or am I further along? Comparing status, accomplishments, finances, possessions, esteem. Parents compare themselves. Uh, the relative success or behavior of their kids versus the relative success and behavior of other kids. The irony is here that Eve was already like God. She was already made in God's image. She carried with her the humility and glory of God's likeness, and she was God's daughter. She had noble work to do. Yet the, confuser, uh, yet the accuser used confusion and comparison to deconstruct all of that and to undermine all of it in her mind and soul. So the accuser, he comes knocking on our door. He's, he's selling something. He wants us to buy it, and he's confusing us, and he's obfuscating, and then he's comparing us and getting us to despair. I'm not good enough, and the only way I'm going to be good enough is if I make up for it in a way that God hasn't asked me to. So shame begins with the accuser, but then the second stage of shame really is the appetite. It's the appetite. Now, last week we saw how a mastered appetite was one of God's good gifts for his sons and daughters. Um, when we master our appetites, whatever they are, we can live with freedom and dignity. When we reject this good gift and let our appetite master us, we give our accusers something concrete to accuse us with. And then we begin to curve inward into shame even more. Verse six, uh, look with me. Okay, so... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, okay, so it was going to taste delicious in her mouth, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that is, the food was beautiful, and she wanted to partake of it. And then finally, that the tree was desired to make one wise. Okay, so Eve sees power. She has an appetite for power, wisdom, knowledge, 
the knowledge of good and evil. So here she is, Eve, she's kind of got this toxic uh, mix of shame and desire flowing through her system here. She has not yet fully acted on it. But this is the state. Have you ever been frothed up like this? You want something so bad, and you also feel terrible about yourself. And you feel rushed into a decision uh, that God has asked you not to make. Here's where Eve is. She's on tilt. God's withholding something good from me, but I could just snatch it. I could just take it. And so she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. What do we crave on the other end of comparison? What do you crave when you compare yourself and come up short? The shame of feeling unworthy in comparison to other people is painful. It's painful. Shame is like getting stabbed. You're not enough. You're not enough. You've damaged yourself. You've lost your hand. So then what appetites come and numb that painful area of our soul. Maybe it's an appetite for love and connection or for approval from other people we admire or for food, sugar, alcohol. Maybe it's an appetite for productivity and work or maybe it's for entertainment or maybe it's for sex. Um, These appetites are going to shine really bright under the black light of shame. They're gonna seem like the best thing for us. Um, Hey, if only you take matters into your own hands... You could be free of shame. You wouldn't feel this pain anymore. The pain would go away. Just express yourself, please yourself, prove yourself. Don't wait, don't think, just go for it. Yet when we do, the shame only intensifies and then we find ourselves hiding. Verse seven, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Okay, so here's Adam and Eve in a moment of painful self-awareness. Like Andy looking in the mirror. Here, they see something that they don't like. They They see a stump where there used to be a hand, and they grimace. Okay? They got what they wanted. They got the knowledge of good and evil. In a sense, they lost their innocence. They grew up too fast. So when, uh, what do we do? when we have grown up too fast. In the harsh light of exposure, when we feel totally exposed, we feel totally naked, we feel totally ashamed, we hide, we put a fig leaf on. This is, the, this is what shame does to us. Sometimes the fig leaf for us is personal privacy. This is like hiding in a hole in the ground and like covering over with a tarp and going, I hope no one ever finds me. But sometimes the fig leaf is personal prominence. Uh, Instead of climbing into a hole in the ground, we climb into, onto a mountain and we work hard to impress people and we hope that people see our great feats of excellence on the mountain and don't pay attention to whatever's under the tarp. Either way, covering ourselves with a fig leaf is one of the most exhausting things that we could ever do. We're no longer in a place of being fully loved and fully known uh, and we're not giving ourselves in love either. We're just preoccupied. All right, so the accuser compares us, and then our appetite consumes us, and then finally, we need, what's the solution for shame? We need Abba Father to cover us. We need Abba Father to come and cover us. 
Abba Father is a familiar name for God from the New Testament, and it captures the Father's heart for us. We see this Father's heart on display in his response to Adam and Eve. Um, The first thing that Abba Father does to come bring us out of our shame is he comes with questions. God comes with questions. Let's read Genesis uh, 3, verses 8 through 13, and just kind of track the number of questions that God asks his people. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord uh, among the trees of the garden. So here the, the presence of the Lord comes to, to, the, to the original temple, the Garden of Eden, and it's like the glory cloud fills it and the leaves begin to rustle and, and, and the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord is drawing near. Verse nine, but the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? There's question number one, where are you? Just three words, but spoken with the tone of a loving father. Where are you? I can't find you. The accuser, if he was asking the question, would ask it differently. Where are you? I know where you are, you sneaking golem. But the Abba Father is brokenhearted. He's concerned. We're his kids. The Father wants to find us. Verse 10, and he, Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because I was naked, and I hid myself. And then he, Abba Father, said, who told you that you were naked? Okay, there's a second question. Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, there's the third question. Notice, okay, Abba Father, what's he doing? He's cutting through the fog of confusion, trying to get to the truth. This is what, this is what a loving parent does. What's really going on here? Verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, um, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Well, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? There's the fourth question. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. You know, Adam and Eve, they don't shine real well in response to God's questions. They seem really intent and focused on covering their sins and exposing other people's sins, which is the human condition, rather than opening up and being like, you know what? You got me, okay? And I don't have anywhere else to go. Where else am I going to go? I sinned. It was my choice. Um, they're, they're kind of defensive and touchy. And yet God's questions get to the heart of the matter. He's, he's trying to draw them out. Um, Jesus Christ shows us the heart of Abba Father. And his biographies record him asking 307 questions during his life and ministry. 307 questions. Here are some of the best questions that Jesus could ask us. These are actual questions from his biographies, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for us when we're battling shame. Here's a sampling. Why are you so afraid? What are you looking for? Do you want to get well? What are you thinking in your hearts? Abba Father asked, where are you? And another way to understand that question is, what is it about yourself that you hope no one finds out? Abba Father, he's searching high and low for his children who are lost in shame, hiding in the bushes. Okay, so in addition to his questions, Abba Father also brings consequences. Just like any good parent would. 
Abba Father brings consequences. Everything we do matters. You know that? Every word we speak, every action we take brings either blessing or curses. And Abba Father is going to, when he draws near us, he's gonna connect the dots between what we've done and the consequences of our behavior. He's gonna say, do you see what happened? Do you see how these things are connected? Do you see how you're still like a moral agent in the universe? In verses 14 and 15, God explains the consequences for the serpent. Because he's exalted himself, God will humble him. He's been a willing vessel of the accuser. In verse 16, Abba Father explains the consequences for Eve. She will experience pain and anxiety as a mother, and she's gonna have a power struggle now in her relationship with Adam. In verses 17 through 19, Abba Father explains the consequences for Adam. His work now is going to become stressful and frustrating. He's going to labor in the fields until it swallows him in death. You know that Adam and Eve are, in this story, they're kind of preoccupied with their nakedness. Isn't that interesting? They're preoccupied with their nakedness. They're very much curved in on themselves, intent on hiding. But God seems to be focused on their moral choices and the consequences of those moral choices. He's got a much bigger vision for our actions in the world. Right now, the um, like shame and how do we find healing from shame, that's a real hot topic in books and TED Talks, and um, we just hear about it all the time. Um, but you know what we don't hear about is we don't hear about healthy repentance for the moral guilt we carry. Not a lot about that, but it's a real thing. So here's a question for you to think about this week. What do you think the difference is between naming someone's sin and shaming someone's soul? Because if you can figure that one out, or better yet, if you could live the answer to that question, you're well on your way to becoming a spiritual mother or father. So Abba Father is intent on naming the sin, their sin and our sin, so that they can grieve over it and come to terms with it. Um, listen, healthy grieving over our moral, moral choices is an important part of maturity and restoration as God's sons and daughters. It's part of the healing process. Moralistic therapeutic deism and the spirit of the age would love to say, you know how to overcome shame? You get people to hug you. You just say everything that you're ashamed of and get everyone to affirm you and that's how you'll overcome shame. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter how many good friends you have or how, uh, how much healing you experience, unless you can grieve over your sin, you are not going to grow up and you are not going to get free of shame. So questions get to the truth. Consequences help us grieve and feel sad over the choices we've made. But you know what? Abba Father doesn't just bring the questions or the consequences. He also brings some clothes. Because it turns out that Abba Father is somewhat of a fashionista. <laughs> um, Adam and Eve did feel shame about their nakedness. Okay? And they tried covering up with fig leaves. It didn't work. So imagine the Lord God carrying out verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Imagine the Lord God 
cutting and stitching together garments that would perfectly match Adam and Eve's frame. Imagine him finding just the right animal that once it was sacrificed and cleaned, uh, that animal's skin and fur would perfectly suit the conditions east of Eden for Adam and Eve. This is the Lord God doing the work. He cares so much about covering Adam and Eve. Imagine the Lord God calling Adam and Eve to himself and saying, hey, I've got some clothes for you, putting them, here, put this on. Conditions are not gonna be the same, Adam, outside of Eden. It's not gonna be the same. You've got a long road ahead of you, Eve. But I want you to know something. I'll always be your father, and I'll always be with you. You can always call out to me. You're still made in my image. And these clothes are gonna help you. They're gonna protect you. They're gonna cover your nakedness. And they're gonna give you what you need to continue serving and loving me. This past weekend, I was playing at the park with my kids after school. And, you know, my daughter was having a great time uh, running through the sprinkler, which miraculously was still turned on. Um, and so we're playing, playing, and she's just running through the, the sprayer. And eventually, you know, the sun starts going down, the wind starts to blow a little bit, and she gets, just gets cold. And I, of course, don't have a towel with me. And so she's just like, Dad, I'm so cold. And Dad, what do I do? And she's shivering. And what's a dad to do? I was wearing a Cub shirt, and I was like, well, this'll do. And just took off my shirt and put it on my daughter. And you know what? That was good enough. And then we got out of there before the neighbors could complain. <laughs> um, what is, when you read through the Bible, what do you see God doing? You see him taking off his glory and putting it on his people when they feel naked and exposed. You see that, you see that throughout the history of Israel. And what do you see? You see Jesus taking off his very uh, heavenly garments and actually getting to the point in this world where he is stripped naked and he is uh, the object of ridicule and abuse on the part of the religious elite and the political elite. Why did he do that? He was taking off his garments of righteousness so that he could cover us in our shame and heal us. And it comes from his very self. And this is why when people are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we symbolize the reality of that baptism by clothing them in white. Because that points us to the, the garments of righteousness that the living God wants to clothe us in to cover our shame. This is the gospel. Abba Father goes into his very own wardrobe, wardrobe, picks out his most favorite outfit, and then clothes us when we are naked. And all you have to do to receive those clothes, you don't have to perform for it. All you have to do is confess your sin and say, I receive the robes of righteousness through Jesus. You can do this this morning. It's like your favorite outfit. You ever have a favorite outfit and you just love it and you feel amazing when you wear your, your favorite shirt, your favorite dress? It's like that except for the inner woman, except for the inner man. And that's what it's like to be clothed by the Father. Um, when we allow the Father to clothe us, here's what becomes possible that was not possible before. We can walk out of hiding once again. And we can do that through verbal confession. Sin no longer has the authority to keep us in the corner. Um, transparency becomes a way of life for us. There's not like the, the self we, we put out there and the self that's real. They can, be, can just be the same person. So it's a much more restful way to live. And then we become more free 
to become spiritual mothers and fathers. We become free to be joyful and loving and pour ourselves out in a way that's not self-protective and touchy. And you can step forward um, in your soul just by saying, Lord, I want to live free of shame, and I want you to cover me with your righteousness. You can do that for the first time this morning, and he'll hear your prayer. You can also step forward and say, you know what? I have been living, I've been giving shame an authority over my very existence, and I no longer want to do that. And so maybe you're going to step forward and receive the sacrament of baptism on All Saints Sunday coming up in a couple of months. Or maybe you want to stand in your baptism. Maybe you were baptized at some point, but you actually want to renew your baptism vows. And if that's true, I want to encourage you to indicate to us that that's true of you. You can just write baptism or baptism renewal on your communication card later today. We'll follow up with you, and you can stand in your baptism on All Saints Sunday and say, I am no longer going to be held captive by the authority of shame, but I'm going to receive the clothes of my Father. When we step out of the corner, we step into the light, we receive the Father's righteousness through Jesus. That is when, no longer held captive by shame, we become God's sons and daughters again, free to pour ourselves out for the life of the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.